Okay, just briefly, I would like to run over what we touched on last week to bring you up to speed. We talked about the doctrine and attributes of God as providing the framework for the early fathers in their describing the Trinity. The Nicene Creed of 325 addressed primarily the Father and the Son in a way to prevent Arianism, which is a heresy we talked about. The Nicene Creed of 381 fleshed out the earlier version. We compared the two last week, and we saw that the 381 Creed more fully addressed the Holy Spirit. We looked at some unique terminology associated with the doctrine of the Trinity that hopefully will be helpful to you as perhaps you are in, uh, encouraged to study the subject on your own. This week we're going to get a bit more technical. And there are some reasons there, but first of all, I need to see a show of hands of those of you who are ready to get more technical. Wait a minute. <laughs> the back row is not raising their hand. <laughs> okay. But we need to get a little bit more technical, and I'm, uh, hopefully I'll be able to present this in a way that... Uh, that you can understand and appreciate, but it's to expose you to some additional terminology, not that we haven't had any, uh, but additional terminology necessary uh, to uh, be aware of issues in the study of the Trinity. To give you insight into the doctrine of Christ, we're going to talk specifically about Christology now, which goes hand in hand with the doctrine of the Trinity. And to give you a more complete picture of Christian creedal orthodoxy. If you remember uh, when we defined orthodox last week or week before, basically the way I'm using it is to refer to uh, uh, that which conforms to the early church creeds. Christian orthodoxy as the way I'm using it is that which conforms to the early church creeds. And so here's your first more technical Slide. We're going to talk about the ontological trinity versus or compared to the economic trinity. And don't, don't let these words uh, scare you. But speaking of the trinity ontologically, ontology is the study of being. So when we talk about speaking of the trinity ontologically, we're talking about that which has to do with what God is in his essence and being ad intra. There's a, a Latin phrase that you'll see when you're reading about the Trinity. They'll talk about the Trinity ad intra, which is also termed the imminent Trinity. And all that's saying is this has to do with what God is in his essence. And when it says ad intra, you can basically take that to mean internally. Okay? So ontologically, the three persons of the Trinity are equally divine, holy, unchanging, sharing one essence and one being. That's talking about the Trinity internally, within itself. Contrast to that, you'll see people talk about the Trinity in an economical sense. Now, the word economic comes from the Greek word oikonomikos. And really it has to do with 
relating to an arrangement of activities. And if you remember when you took home economics, that was really the study of how to arrange activities to efficiently manage a household. Okay? So that, that's what the word economics means. It doesn't primarily mean financial. It primarily means, from the Greek, an orderly arrangement of carrying out a purpose or management of a process like a household. But when you talk about the Trinity from an economical standpoint, what we're saying is this has to do with what God does in regard to creation. Ontologically, this has to do with what God is. Economically speaking, this has to do with what God does in regard to creation. And the the Latin term that would be used to refer to that is ad extra, externally to himself. Primarily, and it's termed the economic trinity, and primarily that's how the Father, Son, and the Spirit relate to creation or the world, especially in the drama of redemption that's revealed to us in Scripture. So it's not as if there's two different trinities, but we're just speaking of the trinity ontologically, which would be ad intra, internally, or in the economy of God, which is external, and has to do with how the Father, Son, and the Spirit relate to creation. So, does that make sense? It may not be readily available as to why those distinctions are made, but if you're reading about the Trinity, that's what you'll run across. They'll say, well, economically speaking, blah, 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 or ontologically speaking, blah, blah, blah. And so this way, you kind of know it doesn't throw you when you see those words. I'm going to quote from R.C. Sproul, who had a few things to say to try and explain specifically the economic trinity. When we speak of the economic trinity, we are dealing with the work of the trinity with respect to the world. And I I put this in here because that's what we were just talking about. Add extra. So when you see add extra, you you, you know what the reference is externally. We distinguish among the three persons of the Godhead in terms of what we call the economy of God. And you'll, you'll see that if you're reading about the Trinity. It is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. It is the Son who acquires our redemption for us. And it is the Spirit who applies that redemption. In the economy, the three persons are distinguished in terms of what they do. So let's talk a little bit about the personal properties within the Trinity. Creedally speaking, as consistent with early church fathers in the Nicene Creed, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. We saw that in the Nicene Creed uh, last week. These are the essential personal properties that distinguish the three and establish their relationship internally, ontologically speaking. This relationship is causal in nature. And what I'm saying there is the Father is uncaused. The Son is caused by the Father. And the Holy Spirit is caused by the Father and the Son. 
When you say that, it seems like I can only relate to the Son being begotten of the Father in relation to time. That there was the Father, and then the Son came forth from him. Right. But, but it was not in time. And that's what I'm saying right here at this last point. These, the causal relationship is eternal. It's spontaneous. And it's necessary to the very nature and being of God. Now remember Arius in the Arian heresy was saying there was a time when the Son was not. We don't want to be thinking of the word begotten here or this causal relationship as indicating there was a time when the Son was not because that's not the case. In fact, we are not to think that the Father willed the existence of the Son. It was not an act of His will. It's necessary, spontaneous, and internal. Eternal, it's necessary to His very nature and being. There was never a time when the Son was not. The creeds expressed that by saying He was eternally begotten. And there's a causal relationship, but not a temporal relationship. There was never a Father without the Son and the Spirit. They are one God, remember? And so when we talk about these things, we have to remember the framework we're working within is monotheistic. There's one God, one being, with one essence, who subsists in these three persons, or these three hypostases, as we might use the Greek term. But these three are God. And they were always God. So that's what I mean when I'm trying to say, as the church fathers did, that this causal relationship is eternal, spontaneous, and necessary to the very nature and being of God. I know that might be a little bit hard to grasp, but that's what the church fathers are trying to express in the creeds. Yeah. Well, the, the, the church fathers saw, saw these properties as being this. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, or the Father and the Son. Right. And, it's, and you're right. We think of it as temporally related, and that's a mistake. And the fathers didn't intend it that way, but that's how we, without having studied the thing, we, we tend to take it temporally, like Jesus was, was born in time. That's not the case. Ho- hopefully, as we go forward, some of that will, will be explained, Robert, but I, I understand what you're saying. There are issues with the translation of monogenes as only begotten, and I understand those too. But I'm trying to present what the Orthodox Church Fathers were trying to say when they established the creeds. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get onto that subordination issue later, but you're right in in the fact that the father-son relationship is eternal. The father-son spirit relationships are eternal. They didn't take place in time. So, you're you're right there. And let's just look at a couple of scriptures. John 1:18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, according to the New King James, or the only begotten God, according to the NASB, who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has declared him. Now, even if we don't translate monogenes as only begotten and translate it as unique, like some of the modern translations are trying to do, the fact that it says who is in the bosom of the Father ratifies his his uh, deity and ratifies the fact that this father-son relationship is eternal. John 6.57, as the living father sent me, okay, and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. You can also look at a similar verse in John 5.26 and John 15.26. But when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. So, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, or sent. The Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, or the Father and the Son. And one of the things I wanted to say is, when we see these things, that order or that causal relationship is what gave rise to the fact that we refer to the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, and the third person of the of the Trinity. You see? Uh, the reason they're first, second, and third, and the Father's first, the Son is second, and the Spirit is third, is because of those causal relationships that I've just described that are eternal. Okay? The Father initiates and plans, the Son executes the plans, and the Holy Spirit applies the plans to believers, right? The Father creates, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. Again, when we're talking about these types of things, we're talking about the Trinity in the economy of God as related to creation and as related to the plan of redemption in the economy. Because as we talked about earlier, there's God is one being. So when the Father, Son, and Spirit in the economy of God to us are doing different things, it's still that one God doing one thing in these three persons. And the causal nature of the eternal relationships ad intra, internally, are reflected in their order of operations externally or add extra. In other words, why did the second person of the Trinity become incarnate? Because it was fitting, it was fitting according to the internal relationship whereby he is eternally the Son. And why was the Holy Spirit breathed into the church at Pentecost? Because it was fitting according to his relational distinction, to be breathed into the church. And it was the Father, because of his eternal relation, ad intra, to send and to breathe the Spirit. So there we have the two things kind of joined together. The imminent Trinity, the Trinity internally, 
is the basis for what you might call the missions externally and what we see the Father, Son, and the Spirit doing in the economy of God. Good. Hebrews 2.10. Good one, Don. That's very appropriate. Even uses the word fitting. Well, there you would refer to those as Old Testament theophanies where he appeared in, as a person, but, but he was not incarnate in that respect. So let me, let me try and summarize. Again, according to the church fathers, the way they viewed it and what they were attempting to uh, formalize in the creeds. The personal property of the first person of the Trinity is fatherhood or paternity. The personal property of the second person of the Trinity is sonship or filiation, which would derive from the Latin. And the personal property of the third person of the Trinity is procession or spiration, meaning breathed. You remember, we've, I think we've all learned at one point that the word spirit actually means breathed or breath. And, and so it's, term, it's termed here an eternal procession. But uh, in the writings, you'll see them refer to spiration as the personal property of the third person of the Trinity. And again, these properties describe the relationships that are eternal and internal, imminent to the Trinity, ontologically speaking. Any questions? Yes. Right. I'm referring to, there's anti-Nicene fathers, that's those who wrote before the council at Nicaea and leading up to it. There are Nicene and post-Nicene fathers who are those that wrote between the 325 creed and the 381 creed. And I'm, I'm lumping them together and calling them the church fathers. But what I'm also doing when I say that is these are the ones who were pro Nicene. They were for the creed as it was formalized. There were others that were anti, A-N-T-I, against the Nicene formalization. Exactly, and we're going to get to that tonight. The Chalcedonian Creed is another one that is part of the Orthodox creed, Christian uh, conformance to the early creeds includes the Creed of Chalcedon, and we're going to talk about that. But now I want to talk about the reciprocal existence of the three. We see three personal self-distinctions within the Trinity. And yet, as I've said, they are one being with one divine nature and substance. And we talked about the word homoousia last week. Spent some time talking about that and the fact that one iota can make a big difference. Athanasius, and we talked about him, he was the secretary to the Bishop of Alexandria at the time of the Council of Nicaea, and he was the great proponent of homoousia and not letting, not letting detractors pull him away from saying homoousia into what we saw last week as homoousia, not the same substance, but a similar substance, or even further out in left field, the heterousia, those who say the substance of the Son is completely different from the Father's. So Athanasius, the great proponent of homoousia, which is what was written into the creed, 
He argued from Scripture for the concept of mutual indwelling. That is, each of the three persons mutually indwells the life of the others. Okay? When you look at the concept of mutual indwelling, ad intra, internal to the Trinity, and then think of what Christ says about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and about the fact that Christ took on human flesh, and now humanity is joined to the triune God, it should blow your mind. And the more you see the Trinity, the more that blows my mind. The post-Nicene fathers, those are the ones who wrote after the first council of Nicaea, they liked what Athanasius was saying. They said, you know what? What you're talking about is described by the word perichoresis. The Greeks were saying that. And then in the Western church, they were saying, yes, and there's a Latin word we can use for that too. It's circumcession. And this refers to this reciprocal existence that uh, Athanasius was talking about. So here's that new word in the Greek word, perichoresis. This is also an emblem that was adopted to try and convey the idea of perichoresis. I'm not sure it was even Christian in origin, but it has been adopted. And you'll see it when people talk about perichoresis. But the word is from two Greek words, peri, which means around or about, and korein, which means to give way or to make room. It could be translated as a rotation or a going around. Hence, the reason they kind of adopted that graphic. Perichoresis is the term used to describe the triune relationship of the persons of the Godhead. As I mentioned, it can be defined as co-indwelling, co-inhering, mutual interpenetration, and other, other ways of trying to describe it. But Alistair McGrath says simply, it allows the individuality of the persons to be maintained while insisting that each person shares completely, I would add, in the life of the other two. They share the same life. And that is consistent with our monotheistic basis. There is one being that subsists in three distinguished persons, even though that word needs a caveat. Steve? This is really something. It is something. The, uh, the term perichoresis was coined by the Cappadocian fathers. Those were the, I think there's two Gregs and a Basil. <laughs> they were in, in the area of Cappadocia. They were prominent in the Eastern Church. And it was in this early time, 340, 50, 60, that this term was coined. That's the idea, anyway. <laughs> That's the idea. Well, yes. And even though I may not have been as good at it as I could have, but it would have taken a lot more time, if you read these guys, these early church fathers, they primarily argued from the scriptures from the get-go with everything they said. And even though people look back and accuse them of adopting uh, Greek philosophy or Greek metaphysics and trying to do this, 
I don't find that the case. I don't think anyone who seriously studies them finds that to be the case. But, for example, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 10.38, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Athanasius is just trying to explain that. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe that on the evidence of the works themselves. John 17:22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. And this is one of those verses that should blow your mind. That they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And brothers and sisters, that's where we're going. Complete unity with Christ in the Godhead. It's, it's amazing. I wasn't challenging you. I just like knowing where each of these oh, in no problem. It's a good question. And uh, these are some of the verses they used to try and say, see here, this is what they're talking about. There's a mutual indwelling. The Father's in the Son. The Son is in the Father. One day we'll be in them. And that's what they meant by that word perichoresis. Now we're going to take a turn or a little bit of a detour and talk about Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ, the person of Christ himself, in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity. Because these early heresies specifically questioned the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Father. And so while the creed attempted to formalize the Trinity and make sure that Jesus Christ was seen as the second person of that Trinity and the Holy Spirit as the third person of that Trinity. There are issues specifically related, related to Christ that had to be addressed also. So Trinitarian theology and Christology go hand in hand. One of those things I'm going to talk about now is eternal sonship having to do with specifically with Christ now. The doctrine of eternal sonship is the teaching that the second person of the Trinity has always existed in relationship to the Father as the Son. It maintains that the name of the Son is not merely a title or a role that the second person assumed at some specific point in history. In other words, the what they're trying to maintain is that this father-son relationship is eternal. And it is essential, it is the essential identity, as we talked about when we are talking about the personal distinctions, the essential identity of the second person of the Godhead is sonship. Hebrews 1-2 But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. He made the universe by his Son. He was the Son before creation. John sixteen twenty eight, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. He was the Son before he became incarnate. 
John 17:24 Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That's a father-son relationship that's eternal. Now we're going to talk just for a moment about the curious case of John MacArthur. For most of his career, John MacArthur held to a position which is called incarnational sonship. That is, the second person of the Trinity became the son at the incarnation. That's what he believed. Up until, it's been quite a while, up until 2001, he had done a lot of writing and had a lot of his career before 2001. But in 2001, he publicly recanted, saying he now believes in eternal sonship and the eternal generation of the Son. And if you want to read his article, just Google the words MacArthur, eternal generation. Those three words, and it will take you right to that article that he published in 2001. Now, for example, at that time, the uh, Master Seminary Statement of Faith read this way. We teach that in the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity laid laid aside his right to the full prerogatives of coexistence with God and assumed the place of a son and took on existence appropriate to a servant, while never divesting himself of his divine attributes. So there was never any doubt that the second person of the Trinity is eternally divine. But his argument was he didn't become the son till he was born of the Virgin Mary. He recanted. Interestingly, even though that was 15 years ago, the Master's Seminaries never never changed their statement of faith. So I don't know what that means. Okay, continuing on eternal sonship. Eternal sonship expresses the fact that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. This has been historically expressed as the eternal generation of the Son. Now, I know that uh, some of you may be aware of the issue of translating Monogenes as only begotten versus unique. And those who have gotten on that bandwagon and chosen to translate it unique uh, have a point because they point to the etymology of the word monogenes and refer it back to a word that means more properly unique. However, etymology does not determine meaning. Usage determines meaning. And in 363 A.D., in his second discourse against the Arians, Athanasius says very plainly that Christ is called only begotten, monogenes, because of his generation from the Father. That's how he understood it, and he knew Greek better than these guys around here today. So all I'm saying is, when Athanasius said only begotten, he didn't mean unique, he meant only begotten. And the church has understood it that way until 30 years ago. 
That's why you're better off reading the dead guys. And I did. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Anyway, again, let me say that this idea of eternal generation of the Son is not universally accepted. There are good theologians and good teachers today that can't really buy into it. So I want you to know that there are those who disagree with what I'm saying. Because what I'm presenting is the creedal view that the early church fathers expressed. There are those to that today that would take issue with that. You just need to be aware of that. There's good arguments on both sides by good men. I'm presenting what, what I personally think is the right view, but again, that's, that's under discussion and under dispute. So I just want you to know, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm telling you there are people that disagree. Steve. Right, it wasn't until the 300s that perichoresis. Was, was there a lot of fighting about that idea? I don't think there was fighting about that idea, no. no. The, the, there was, I don't think there's any dispute over the mutual indwelling, the idea of mutually indwelling. Yes, sir? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm really Did you just come in? Yeah, I just. Okay. We, we <laughs> talked about that. No, that's fine. Let me just say again. The word eternal is there to prevent you from thinking what you're thinking. The Arians said there was a time when the Son was not. That God the Father begat Him as a subcontractor to create everything else. Nevertheless, the church father said He was begotten, but this begottenness is spontaneous to the very nature of God. It is eternal. There was never a time when there was not the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Because they are one being. They are one God. So the word generation, taken without the caveat or the adjective eternal, can be misunderstood, and people today misunderstand that. And it doesn't mean it's a one-time event. The second person of the uh, uh, Trinity is eternally begotten. It's not something that happened at a point in time. It's part of the nature of God. I hope that helps. The eternal generation of the Son is fundamental to an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, even though, as I mentioned, some today take exception to it. I'm going to move to another subject. (laughs) Any questions? Okay. The hypostatic union. How many have heard that phrase? Yay. I think about half of. Said, I think you mentioned it. Oh, but did I? Earlier. Oh. Well, I mentioned the word hypostasis, and this comes from that. But the phrase hypostatic union is another new thing. When we looked at vocabulary last week, we looked at hypostasis as the Greek word meaning an individual reality, or with caveats, the word person in reference to the Trinity. The technical term hypostatic union, however, in the doctrine of Christ or Christology is used to describe the union of Christ's humanity and divinity in one hypostasis. Do you see what I'm saying? One individual reality, one person, 
there is a, a union of Christ's humanity and divinity. And so that's what we're going to talk about. The second person of the Trinity became incarnate, took on humanity in the flesh. In doing so, the divine nature of the Son was forever joined to the human nature of man in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Does that all sound good? That's good. Jesus is not a divine person who pretends to be human, the heresy of docetism, nor is he a human who becomes divine. You know, we talked about adoptionism as one of the early heresies where Jesus was so good, God decided to impart to him part of his divine nature. That's not good. He is not half God and half man. Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. That's hard to fathom, but that's what it is. The second person of the Trinity remains one person, but now has two natures, human and divine, which are not combined, mingled, or confused, but remain distinct in the one person, Jesus Christ. On a previous page, point number two, isn't that where MacArthur got tied up? No, he was saying that the second person of the Trinity didn't become a son until he was incarnate. But this is saying in his incarnation, in his person, he took on human nature in conjunction with his divine nature. Okay? There is no other being, there is no other person that has two natures. Christ is unique, especially in that respect. God is one in being, essence, and nature. Yet, the second person of the Godhead, now and forevermore, has two natures, divine and human. Unbelievable. But that's, that's what we confess. The doctrine of the two natures in Christ was not derived from Greek philosophical notions. It was derived from the data and information presented in Scripture. It was formally stated and defined in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451, again, to combat related heresies. So we have the Nicene Creed of originally in 325. We have the expanded version in 381, which was the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed which everybody refers to as the Nicene Creed. And now, in 451, 90 years later, or 80 years later, we have another creed. This is very important because this deals with that with Christology and it deals with the two natures in Christ. And that's what makes it important. So, let's read it together. Here it is. This I may have left out a few words, but you've got the main thrust of it right here. We then, following the Holy Fathers, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, 
and in these latter days for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, according to his manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. Because there were people saying, well, it just became some kind of hybrid nature. It was a mixture of divine and human nature. And the Chalcedonian Creed says, no, they remain distinct, yet they are in one person. Concurring in one person, the Greek word prosopon, which we looked at last week in our vocabulary, and, and one subsistence, these are synonyms, hypostasis, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how they said it, and that's how it was, has been adopted and understood ever since. That's the Chalcedonian Creed. So let's look at these first four councils just briefly. Then I may have to stop short. The first council at Nicaea affirmed that Jesus is truly God and equal to the Father and repudiated Arianism and adopted the original creed. The first council at Constantinople in 381 affirmed that Jesus was perfectly man against the Apollinarians and revised the Nicene Creed into its present form. We had handouts last week where you could see them side by side. The council at Ephesus in 431, which we haven't really talked about, affirmed that Jesus is one person against Nestorianism, which was another heresy, saying he was two persons. Basically, that he existed as two persons, the man, the man Jesus and the divine Son of God rather than a unified person, two persons in one body. And uh, Eutychianism was another early heresy which maintained that Jesus Christ was of one nature only, a mixed or confused, I would say confused nature of divine and human. So there was these things going around, and this was trying to say no. He has two natures. They remain distinct, divine and human, and they're in one person, not two persons. And finally, the Council of Chalcedon, which came up with the creed we just read, affirmed that in Jesus there are two distinct natures in one person that are hypostatically united without confusion. Monophysitism is just another word for saying one nature, which was uh, what Eutychianism said. And they adopted the Chalcedonian Creed. Yeah. The emperor probably called all of these. I don't think you could have a ecumenical council without the emperor sending out the word. So what these bishops would do is they would have a local synod or a, a regional synod, and then they'd go to the emperor and say, can you, can you send out the word and, and call together an ecumenical council so we can decide this? So I think all four of these are called by emperors. The first four councils provide the basic definition of the Trinity and the person of Christ. We've seen the creeds coming out of those councils. The councils have been universally accepted by the church at large. And the doctrine of the Trinity, if not the sine qua non, at least a sine qua non, which is Latin for without which not. In other words, 
Christianity without the Trinity is not. You can't have Christianity without the Trinity. However, one more doctrinal point remained to be settled. And it's 8 o'clock. So I have five charts that I'm going to have to wait till next week. And we're going to hit one more point to be settled in the doctrine of Christ before we move on to modern developments in the Trinity and then our conclusions. So let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for those that are here tonight. We love each other as brothers and sisters in the fellowship that you have given us in Christ and we can barely think about the unity we will one day have with Christ in you and it is a thought that drives us to our knees. We thank you so much for being our triune God. For it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.